Do you agree that there's a lot of divisiveness in the country right now? I love the way that you phrase that question because it's a big question. I don't think there's anything irredeemable about this country. I just think you have to reimagine what she looks like. Bakari Sellers made history in 2006 at just 22 years old. He defeated a 26-year incumbent state representative to become the youngest member of the South Carolina State Legislature and the youngest African-American elected official in the nation. Now, in 2014, Sellers won the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor in South Carolina and has also worked for United States Congressman James Clyburn and former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin. He is widely considered to be a rising star within the Democratic Party and leading voice for his generation. You're going to find out why in just a few minutes, because I'm going to quit rattling and let him talk. (laughs) He is followed in the footsteps of his father, civil rights leader, Dr. Cleveland Sellers, in his tireless commitment to public service while championing progressive policies to address issues ranging from education and poverty to preventing domestic violence and childhood obesity. Sellers earned his undergraduate degree from Morehouse College and his law degree from the University of South Carolina. Now, he is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, My Vanishing Country, a memoir which has been described as part memoir, part historical, and cultural analysis, illustrating the lives of America's forgotten black working-class men and women, and his new book, an inspiring picture book, Who Are Your People? which is a tribute to the family and community that really helps make us who we are. He has also expanded his audience with the Bakari Sellers podcast, a twice a week show, part of the Ringer podcast network that addresses a variety of topics, really, from politics, race, sports, media, the presidential campaign, and really a whole lot more. He practices law with the Strom Law Firm, LLC, in Columbia, where he heads the firm's strategic communications and public affairs team, and he's recently added diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting to the list of services that he's offered. Now, you've probably seen him on CNN. He's a prominent political contributor there. So welcome, Bakari. How you doing? My mom must have, must have written that introduction. <laughs> yeah. I'm, doing, well, I'm doing really, really well, Dr. Phil. It's good to be here with you today. That really is a hell of an introduction, and you're just 37 years old, so you haven't exactly been sitting around just hanging out on the porch, have you? I have not, but I can tell you that uh, the most important jobs I have is is 1A and 1B, being a husband to Ellen and being a father to Kai, Sadie, and Stokely. Um, people always see me now. You know, you have these, and you understand this, Dr. Phil, uh, you have these new 4K televisions and all of these things. And people see me and they say, you look tired. And I say, because I am, I've got three-year-old twins. And so, yeah, I'm making it day by day, Dr. Phil. Were you really surprised when you found out you were having twins? Surprised? (laughs) I'm not sure. I was anxious. Uh, I knew one thing. Immediately after I had those twins, I went to the doctor and made sure I could have no more. I was not taking the risk of having twins back to back. Oh, I got you. My wife's a twin and my son married a triplet. And we had triplets on my dad's side of the family. When my son started having kids, we thought they were going to have litters. We thought (laughs) they were just going to be everywhere. (laughs) 
The twins are a lot. They have each other, but I, I just say that my twins are little unemployed terrorists. They just walk around with their hands up, making demands all day. Yeah. Well, listen, your dad was really a prominent civil rights leader, Dr. Cleveland Sellers. I know he had to have a big influence on you. How did that come to pass? Were you at his elbow a lot? Did you guys work together? Did you shadow him? How did he impact you? I know he did. I'm just curious how it came to pass. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have your hero in your kitchen. Um, Every single day being able to go out and um, he's cooking dinner, uh, breakfast. um, He's at your games. Uh, That's my hero. And um, I grew up a product of the proverb and I write about it in Who Are Your People? But it's it takes a village to raise a child. My dad was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So my village was unique. I'd have people like Julian Bond. I'd have people like Marion Barry. I'd have Judy Richardson. Um, the heroes in our household were Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker. Um, it was just an awesome, awesome village that helped raise me. And yeah, I was at his, I was at his elbow. Um, everywhere we went, I was there. Um, trying to learn and soak up as much as as much of our history as I could. Did you guys have things that you saw differently, disagreed about? I, I don't know if it's disagreed about, but you know that that youthful naivete that I try to keep. Um, it made me question things with the benefit of hindsight. Um, you know, one of the questions that I'd always ask my dad, Doctor Phil, is should um, should uh, integration have been the goal of the movement? Should you, uh, should we have fought so diligently for integration or should we have um, attempted to have economic empowerment within our own community? Um, and of course, my dad says that, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, but we would, you know, I, I would challenge on, on those things. But in terms of just disagreements, um, he probably has more disagreements with me than I do with him as, yeah. as most fathers and sons. Yeah, I suspect that's probably more common, but let me ask you, I believe that there is a high degree of divisiveness in this country right now. I think some of it's racial. I think some of it's political. Do you agree that there's a lot of divisiveness in the country right now? Wholeheartedly, yes. Is there something that you point to thematically that you think it's owing to? Yes, thematically, and that's a, I love the way that you phrase that question because it's a big question. Um, thematically, uh, we've never dealt with the issue of race in the country, which is the root of our divisiveness. Um, I think that um, <clears throat> by not dealing with the original sin of this country, by not truly combating or having dialogue and discussion about the issue of race, um, we have contributed. It's like a cancer when you don't cut it out, it just metastasizes. Uh, I think that the, and this is going to sound weird coming from somebody on CNN, but I think that a lot of the, um, and I love Ted Turner, by the way, but a lot of the divisiveness we see culturally and in our face is because of the 24-hour news cycle. And with this 24-hour news cycle, there's a lot that has to be fit into those 24 hours which means that you have a lot of crosstalk. You have a lot of people who are trying to, you have individuals right now who um, have news shows, but they don't even, uh, it, they say, don't consider them to be journalists. They are entertainers at that. And so that type of feeling, that 24 hour news cycle with whatever, 
um, on top of um, the issues we have of race, I think is decently combustible. Because I was going to ask you, is it a news cycle anymore? Because I'm much older than you, about twice, actually. I really wonder if it is a news cycle, because I turn on CNN, and it's really hard to trust what I'm hearing because there's so much agenda and so much spin. So I flip over to Fox, and it's the same thing, just all spin, all agenda. It's like, do I like mix it all up, divide it by two, and take the middle? It's hard to know where I can go to find out what really happened. It's hard to find news anymore where somebody doesn't have an agenda that they brought to the desk, and so they're running it through their filter, which I resent, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I, you asked, you posed a really good question. I mean, first, is there a news cycle anymore to answer the original question? Um, it's, it's, I, you know, my father used to come home and you are of that generation. Ain't calling you old, just calling you seasoned. Um, and he Thank would, you for that. he would, uh, after dinner, you know, he'd sit in a chair and he'd watch what the six, six o'clock local news. And then the six 30, uh, you know, ABC or CBS or whomever it was. And then you know, the seven o'clock, whatever programming it was. And that was the news cycle uh, over the past, you know, four or five years. It's like been drinking out of a, of a fire hose. There's nothing worse, Dr. Phil, than when you're on TV and you get in your ear a producer saying, uh, the president has just tweeted. We're going to go to that. We're going to put it on the screen and we're going to talk about it. You have no idea what it is, but that, that became the news. And to your point, I think that there with the um, emergence of social media in news, there has been a focus on being first and not being right, which has posed a problem. Everybody wants to be the first to the story and people don't care necessarily about being right in the story. Um, but I think e even more importantly, and one of the things we are doing at CNN is getting back to the journalism um, and not the, the entertainment. I mean, that's our new boss's kind of mantra. I'm excited about it. Um, and we'll see what happens. I, I get paid to tell my truth. And so um, I'm not a journalist. I tell folk that all the time. Um, I'm a commentator and I will tell you the truth as Bakari sees it. And that's the best I can do. But you don't masquerade or wrap what you're saying up as news. You're saying, I am a commentator. I have a point of view. I'm going to tell you my point of view. And so you're transparent about it. Correct. Very much so. And I think that there's a balance. We've always had that balance. There's somebody else on there with an alternative background, a different point of view, at least somebody in the middle. Um, but what you're talking about, and one of the things we do well, I mean, just recently, whether or not it's the war um, or whether or not it's a school shooting, is we, we do cover those stories extremely well. Because I think that, and I, I don't want to be presumptuous or assume, but I'm pretty sure that when somebody tells you there's been a school shooting, which happens, unfortunately, more than it should, which is a part of our American fabric. I mean, you turn to CNN and you see and you watch and you, you try to glean what happens from there. But yeah, all media needs to do a better job of day in and day out covering the news. I won't disagree with you. The first page of a book never tells the full story. 
And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. It really bothers me when I see even something like tragically happened in Uvalde where we had 19 students killed, two teachers, and then recently one of the teachers' husbands died of a heart attack, maybe related, I can imagine, with the stress. I'm watching that. I don't even know which channel it was, but I start hearing people from both sides of the aisle using it to politicize issues of gun control and whether the governor of the state is doing enough of this or enough of that. There's time for that. But in the meantime, we've got people down there that are really hurting and need resources and help. And it just really is offensive to my sensibilities to see people getting up on their hind legs and running an agenda on top of that. I hate to see that. I would push back on the framing of that because I would, I would, my pushback would be that when is the time to have these conversations? And people always say, well, you know, the bodies are still, they're still warm. And as someone who lived through a mass shooting, um, you know, one of my good friends, I write about it, Clemente Pinckney was the pastor at Mother Emanuel Lamy Church and, um, you know, him along with eight others. I mean, they, like, like in Buffalo, I, I would just say that, he, you know, Dylan Roof took the best of us. He didn't, he walked into a church doing Bible study and shot nine people. Um, Tragic. When do you, when do you have these conversations? And what I resent more than the, uh, you know, politicization or whatever you may call it is the do nothingness. Um, because we've had, you know, you, you had people forget we had the largest mass shooting in the history of the world um, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, right. in the, the concert, we've had Parkland, we've had Sandy Hook, we've had, we've had Fort Hood, we've had Charleston. I mean, the list of mass shootings, school shootings goes on and on and on. And so I, I understand the space needed to grieve. I mean, we're still grieving in, in Charleston and it happened in 2015. But what frustrates me more is the, the do nothingness of our quote unquote leaders on both sides of the aisle. Well, I agree that nothing has been done. And this is a matter of coming up with a model of prevention, not intervention. But I'll push back on your pushback (laughs) and say people deserve their space in that moment. Let's at least give them center stage and space because, as you point out, what's been done does three to five days make a difference? I think based on results, it hasn't. So we can at least be respectful of those that are hurting instead of interrupting press conferences and beating on the drum. How about instead we actually get some meaningful legislation? We actually get a plan of prevention that should 100% be bipartisan. This doesn't have anything to do with the Second Amendment. 
everybody frames it that way, but it doesn't have anything to do with Second Amendment. You will not get an argument from me out of that. I'm a concealed weapons permit holder. I'm a, I'm a Democrat from South Carolina, which uh, doesn't make me the most liberal Democrat in the world. I got my, I got my CWP. I was in a class with Nikki Haley, of, of all people, one of my good friends who are actually from the same small county in Bamberg, South Carolina. And so I, I, I get all of that. I, I understand it, and it should be. But you have to have something to get 60 votes. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be extremely blunt with you, Dr. Phil. And I think that's why people some I mean, whether or not people like me or not, I think they always respect my truth. But when um, 20 white kids were killed in Sandy Hook and we did absolutely nothing, our country became so desensitized to that. It became so normalized when we did nothing after Sandy Hook. I was completely um, jaded by the thoughts that anything would happen in the future. And so I was speaking to a colleague today at CNN and I said, um, it's very difficult to be a, a new parent. My 16 my year old is my, my stepchild and my three year old, of course, are mine. But it's very difficult to go through this, this uh, phase of sending your kid to school because you know it's going to happen again. Your prayer has to be that it doesn't happen to your children. And that is an anxiety-inducing moment. Well, it is. There were 61 active shooters on campus in 2021. That's more than one a week. I mean, and you think about this kid in, um, in Texas. He went and got an AR-15 on two different occasions and 350. 50 bullets and nobody stopped to think that maybe there needed to be some pause or maybe there needed to be some further. I just don't get it. I think that there's some common sense, basic things we can do and we're just not there. You said when Sandy Hook happened and there were all of those white children that got killed and nothing happened. Why do you point out that they're white children? I think that for a country that has uh, a true question mark on the value of certain lives and the, the benefit of humanity. I think um, by bringing in that component and being extremely clear in the description thereof um, and saying that there's no question these lives matter, there's no question of the value of the sanctity of these lives, this is not in question at all. Um, and we did nothing, I think that exacerbates and drives home a point. It also, Dr. Phil, in a probably decently um, cynical way, is decently sensationalized, I recognize that. It draws people to the sentiment, but it also points out a true fact that we did nothing after Sandy Hook, and I, I stand on the resolve that if we did nothing after Sandy Hook, we won't do anything now. Yeah, so your point is, if you didn't do anything after those white kids were shot, they're sure not gonna do anything if minority children are killed not after 70 percent hispanic community was shot up now so you don't have much hope that that's going to send a, a message up the chain that says okay enough's enough too much is too much now's the time i hope i'm wrong but i mean do you have faith something i mean it's your show i don't mean to be posing questions to no you. ask me anything you want but do you have faith that anything's going to change and if so what gives you what is that faith rooted in my hope is that at some point, there's got to be 
a tipping point where America says enough's enough and too much is too much. And if anything is going to cause the left and right to come together, then somebody that goes in and guns down innocent children, I mean, these children were nine, 10 years old. That to me is about the most cowardly, egregious thing you can do. And it just seems really hard to imagine that anybody from the far left to the far right could disagree that that is an absolute stain on our nation, that that is a horrible thing to keep happening. Like I said, it's 61 times in 2021. At some point, if there's a bipartisan issue, protecting our young people and our elderly seems to be something that everybody should find non-threatening and come together on. It just seems like if you're going to pick something, that would be a place that people could rally around. I hear you and I don't disagree. I just don't. And I think there'll be the recognition thereof. A solution or a policy solution or an implementation of something to change or alter the path of where we're, where we're at, not where we're headed. I, I just don't see that happening. I mean, I don't see universal background checks have over a 75, 80% approval from both left and right, all races, all age groups. And we still haven't passed it. I mean, they, they, just that simple policy proposal, um, we can't get that done. And it's the do nothingness um, again. And I, I, I say that as the kids say, you know, we got to, you know, who, who wants to smoke, you know, both sides of the aisle deserve that. Well, why is that? Why is there the do nothingness from the inside out? What do you see? Uh, I see it being a lack of courage. I see the role of special interest. I mean, the same week you have a mass shooting, you have um, individuals from the great state of Texas going to an NRA convention to speak. Um, and you know, the NRA, I would, it's not what it once was, but I would argue the NRA is probably the second or third most powerful lobby behind the ARP. Um, um, it's a lack of a vision. Um, and it, it's, 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 I don't think that our elected officials are truly listening to the pain that you and I, and we don't, you know, there are not enough conversations like the one that you and I are having. I, I would ask, um, outside of hunting hogs or hunting and killing hogs, why do you need an AR-15? Um, you know, why, why, why does anyone need an AR-15? And, you know, those are just legitimate questions that, you know, me and John Kasich, the Republican governor of, of former Republican governor of Ohio, we agree on that sentiment. And we've, we've had people agree on that sentiment. It's just something right now that we're so polarized and people want to yell the two things we hear all the time when these things happen, um, the people want to yell about mental health. And there's been no indication that this uh, young man had any mental illness. Um, and then people want to say, what about Chicago? And, and both of those things, as you stated earlier, I truly resent. If there's a path to overcome the do-nothingness, what is it? Electing better people. When are you running for Senate, Dr. Phil? I'll, I'll come support you. I think about what you just said about electing better people. 
I wonder sometimes if the better people have the attitude that you get into the system and you just get bogged down and they think they can have more impact from the outside in than the inside out. I mean, I think that that's a reasonable. And then you, you look around and why would you want to work with some of these people that are there to be honest with you? <laughs> when yeah. I first got elected, uh, I was 21, 22 years old. And I remember going in the state house and I would look at folk and I'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. And then after about a month, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're here. I can't believe you're here. <laughs> yeah. How did you get here? <laughs> it's, it's, it becomes a quick, it's cold water on you quite quickly. Yeah, I suspect you get disillusioned pretty fast. You know, the funny thing, though, Dr. Phil, and the perspective that I come from on all of these things, whether or not it's the issue of race that we talked about, whether or not it's guns or, you know, being forward thinking or whatever, I, I don't think uh, personally there's anything irredeemable about this country. I just think you have to reimagine what she looks like. And so, I mean, I don't know. Call me youthful and call me naive. I just, I just think we have to reimagine. Um, what this country should be. You said that the original sin has never been dealt with. What do you think should be done? I mean, I think we have to have honest conversations about it. And I think that was one of the benefits of the 45th president of the United States, that for the first time in this country, uh, it, was, it was front and center. And um, we, were, we were dealing, we were, we were having conversations outwardly about race. When I, when I look at uh, Charlottesville, for example, you know, with the tiki torches and the uh, Jews shall not replace us and the um, uh, chant races and anti-Semitic chants that were had in, in Charlottesville. What stuck out to me the most was that nobody wore a hood. Nobody covered their face. They didn't wear masks. They were so emboldened and comfortable in their anti-Semitism, in their racism. And for me, that was a watershed moment in this country where People, it was no longer in the dark corners. And we were, we were outwardly having these conversations about the fact that systemic racism is a true issue. Um, I think that many of these systems we have to deconstruct. Um, and I say reimagine earlier, I'll throw that word out there again, but rebuild them in an image that's inclusive. I don't, I mean, I, I've, I've never, and I don't, I don't really know anybody. I don't, I don't want you to dance for me. I just want to be on the dance floor. I mean, I just, hope that it pe that everyone has an opportunity. How do you go about that? How do you do that? You know, you sound kind of pessimistic that you think, eh, it ain't going to happen. It's too far gone. Are you of the belief that it's not going to happen, that we've passed that level? No, I mean, I still, I mean, I still have faith. I have faith in tomorrow. Um, I always do. I'll keep that. My father believed, my, you know, my father was shot in the civil rights movement. He was shot in the shoulder. My father went to prison not once, but twice, once for refusing to go to Vietnam and once for the incidents of the Orange Road Massacre. The police shot him and they put him in prison. Um, my sister's middle name is Abadame, it's Swahili. It means born while father's away because my sister was born while my father was in, the, in, the, in, in prison. <clears throat> and my, my dad, and the reason I say there's nothing irredeemable about this country is my dad could have lashed out with righteous anger. But instead, like, I mean, he believed like Abraham Lincoln believed in the better angels of our nature. I think to answer your question specifically, though, it, there, there's, there's no such thing as rising tide lifts all boats. Um, I think there has to be, um, um, you know, specific policy proposals that deal with issues of race in this country and address specific 
uh, specific problems. Um, you know, people say rising tide lifts all boats. Well, what if you have a dinghy? Um, what if you ain't got no boat at all? What if you got a surfboard with a hole in it? Like, um, you know, everybody doesn't have the opportunity to rise with the, with the tide. And so um, I'm just a firm believer that we just have to make sure that we create that equity and create that opportunity. Give me an example of what you would implement as a core policy that would start creating what you're looking for. You know, I, I, first of all, let's start with, uh, let's start with public education. Um, you know, we can go from public education to, you know, affordable housing to um, water. You know, there are 100 cities in these United States that have less potable water than Flint, Michigan. Um, we can go to a criminal justice system that we're that are in tatters. But in this country, Dr. Phil, you are punished because of the zip code that you're born into. Um, that's just a fact. Um, and ed schools are funded on a three-legged system. Uh, you have federal funding, you have state funding, you have local funding. It's a three-legged stool. And so, you know, if you're in a poor community, um, oftentimes dating back to Brown versus the Board of Education, where Chief Justice Warren said that segregation causes a sense of inferiority by placing children in environments not conducive to learning, uh, these communities are many times black and brown communities. And instead of creating new systems of, of of streams of revenue to pump into these areas, um, whether or not it's gaming, whether or not it's marijuana, um, being creative or inventive, whether or not it's creating a tax base to woo the next, you know, Revlon or Tesla to your community. Um, many times these areas remain stagnant. And, you know, I, I don't know if you read Friedman, Dr. Phil, but not a big Friedman fan, but, he, you know, he wrote the world is flat. I agree. The, I'm not like Kyrie Irving crazy, like you're not gonna fall off the edge. But yet the world is flat because we're we are now competing with kids. If you graduate in South Carolina, you're now competing with kids who graduate around the world. And we are not preparing our particularly black children for a 21st century global economy. And so, yes, I would have a policy proposal that directly infuses cash into these areas through innovation, progressive ideals, um, so that these kids have the resources to learn and compete. What do you think about these situations now where there are neighborhoods that are high crime, low tax base, low industry opportunities. How do we get those kids out of there to get the kind of opportunities that they need to have a chance, to have a shot, to not get up the ladder, but even get on the ladder? To, to even have a ladder, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the question is, I mean, we have to address the underlying systemic reasons that we have these communities in the first place, the proliferation of guns. People talk about Chicago often. And I always say that, you know, the reason there's so many guns in Chicago is because Indiana has terrible gun laws. That's where the guns come from. They come from an hour away, 45 minutes away in Indiana. But also we have to invest in these communities. You have to have summer lunch programs, summer job programs. You have to have after school programs. You have to have resources. Um, in many of these communities, um, many, many of these communities, Black fathers are not in the homes um, due to mass incarceration. You have, you know, for a very long period of time, Dr. Phil, and you are, you know this better than I, so I dare not step into your uh, bailiwick, but, um, you know, crack in this country was seen to be a crime. It was a, it was, they, they treated it as a crime. Um, and opioid addiction is treated as a public health outcry. And so I think that, you know, we have to examine the way 
uh, that we adjudicate these crimes, that we treat these crimes. Um, we have to examine the resources and outlets. One of the things I did in my district was I built a library. People laugh at me. They're like, that was the best thing you did? I was like, yeah, because right now in Denmark, kids can go there and they can have after school programs. They can have summer programs. People go there to get access to Wi-Fi. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very real thing. And just being, just being innovative and thinking about what your community needs and trying to meet those goals is, is what we need more of. People want to run the TV. They want to be a part of a clique or whatever and say the most outrageous things. And nobody wants to work and get it done anymore. There's interestingly a lot of research about violence, gun violence in particular, as I'm sure you know, it clusters. There are even micro clusters. It clusters into neighborhoods. And even within a neighborhood, it clusters into specific blocks within a neighborhood. Empirical evidence has shown that if you focus on that micro cluster in a neighborhood and you go into those that are committing that violence, you actually sit down with those wrongdoers and say, okay, look, we know who's doing this. We know it's you. We may not have enough to arrest you right now, but we know that it's you. And we want to offer you an alternative. We want to provide you with a ladder and with a way to change this and alter this to give you a way to get out of this situation that the results are pretty astounding in terms of the number of these violent individuals that choose a different path. They choose to seize that opportunity, choose that education, choose whether it's occupational education or school or whatever, that they actually embrace that and get themselves out of that situation if somebody's willing to do that with them and for them. It's just a matter of focusing on those micro clusters to really change the face of that community. And you're, you're, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. I, I wholeheartedly agree, but it takes that focus. It takes the resources. It takes the opportunity. Just giving people an opportunity, you'll be surprised. Right? Having a certain level of expectation for them, you'll be surprised. We get caught up in stigmas. You know, Dr. Phil, one of the things I always tell folk, and it flusters them a little bit, I was like, you know, there's no such thing as black on black crime. You know, that's like not a real thing. It's a, it's, it's a sociological myth. To your point, we live in highly segregated communities. And because we live in these highly segregated communities, people are more prone and apt to commit crimes against people that they're in those clusters with. And so 90% of all people who, black folk who are killed are killed by black folk. But 90% of all white people who are killed are killed by white folk. And it's because of these clusters, it's because of these highly segregated communities that we live in. And my only point in saying that is that if we focus on the things that are real and not these highly divisive rhetorical analysis going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation that we throw out there on cable news and deal with the substance, as you just said, we'd have much stronger, healthier and better communities. Yeah. And I think where a lot of people are lost in the debate, in the argument, in the joining of the solution is that difference between give a man some fish he'll eat tonight, teach him to fish he'll eat the rest of his life. It's not about just giving individuals money as opposed to 
taking those funds and empowering them to create a different standard of living for the rest of their life. And I think that's where a lot of people that I've talked to differ in saying, well, you can take them out of poverty by making these funds available. They question whether that is a patch or a solution, but they don't push back so much on saying if that money is spent on alternatives and education and giving them a different path, I don't find as much resistance to that as I do the other. No, I mean, in these communities, you talk about things like midnight basketball. Um, oh, and this is this is gonna this is gonna blow your mind. The Kaiser Foundation really recently did some studies. Uh, it was either Kaiser or Kellogg. They recently did some studies, and what they showed was the number one cause of of underperformance amongst Black children, particularly in the South, in schools, was hunger. Right? Kids are going to school hungry. You can't perform if you're hungry. And so the free uh, the the breakfast program, the free breakfast program, or just ensuring they have somewhere to go after school. I mean, these are what you're. I'm not. I'm not advocating for a check to be written to anyone. What I am saying, though, is that there are so many things we can do in and around our communities to make them stronger. Do you think something should be taught in the schools about this that's not being taught? We hear all this debate about critical race theory being taught in schools. Those (laughs) criticisms are always from people that don't know what critical race theory is. They haven't been to law school. They haven't been to the second year of law school, so they don't understand what that is. What do you think about what's being taught in the schools or what should be taught in the schools? I think we have to do a better job of teaching our young people things that are practical. I think that we have to teach them things like fiscal responsibility. I think that, you know, how to balance a checkbook, um, how to uh, uh, how to budget, how to save. Uh, Those things are important. I don't have conversations or debates about critical race theory, Dr. Phil, because to your point, the people I'm having these discussions with don't know what it is. They have no idea. They have no idea what it is. And so we're not going to engage in those conversations. But to your point, I I do think that we need to, you know, right now, many times we teach to a test. And I think we need to teach to life. And I think we need to make sure that we're, um, we're, we're giving young people the um, the kind of the tools to succeed in this new 21st century global economy. I think we need to teach young people how to code, right? So, you know, teaching young people how to code is, is very, very, very important. I have two boys and my youngest son at one point was asking me, you know, what do you want for Christmas? You're so hard to buy for cause you're old and you do whatever you want. I told him, here's what I want. I want you to give me one hour a week to talk about anything I want to talk about. And he said, done. I said, no, no, no. You got to think about this because I'm going to hold you to it. So you think about it overnight and you come back. And he came back and said, okay. And to his credit, he actually did it. There was a lot of eye rolling early on, but then pretty soon he started coming back. Hey, I want my hour. I did what you're talking about. I taught him how to change spark plugs in a car. I taught him about checking accounts. I taught him about insurance for cars and a house. I taught him about utility deposits. I taught him about fertilizer, just things that you just don't get taught anymore. You know, we learn those things, but you don't get taught that anymore. You want to, you want to know this. I'm a country boy, Dr. Phil, and you'll appreciate this. Do you remember when they used to mail you credit cards? Oh yeah. My dad, every time he would get one in the mail, 
my dad would bring it in the kitchen and he'd cut it up. Yeah, um, yes. And and my dad would always, he taught us, he, he didn't teach us nothing about credit. But what he did say was that if you can't afford it, you should not buy it. Yeah. That was his, that was his philosophy. But, you know, I think that there, you know, STEM coding, financial literacy, I think if I could, if I could implement one portion of a curriculum across the country, most people would be like, oh, you're going to teach people critical race theory. You're going to teach people black history. No, I'm going to teach people financial literacy. That would be the number one thing that I would teach everyone because you know what financial literacy is? It's that ladder that you were talking about. Yeah. It's, it, it helps teach you how to climb out of your circumstances. I just wrote an op-ed for Sportico. I said that the NFL draft just minted 262 new millionaires and they had no idea what was just around the corner because the career is about three years and two years out of the league, 78% of them will be bankrupt or in serious financial distress because nobody teaches them how to manage their money. Nobody teaches them what to do. And they make more, even on the low end of the draft, they make over $3 million, which is more than a college graduate makes in 40 years working. They don't teach them how to manage that money. No. And they invest in like a car dealership and a car wash, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I have a lot of friends. Um, uh, one, of my, one of my very, very good friends, I refer to him as my little brother. He, um, he had about, I would say he had, I think he told me he had $63 million in a savings account, Dr. Phil. In wow. a savings account. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, and he, his whole, his philosophy was one, there's not a lot of trust with folk. Two, um, you know, his, his entire financial philosophy is that he'll never be broke again because he grew up in poverty. He ain't going back there. Um, but he just doesn't, he doesn't know, understand markets or anything like that. So he has, there, there, is, there is a bank with a savings account and it's growing at what, 0.025%. <laughs> It's shrinking now. <laughs> That's true. And it has $60 million. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. Shaq's a good friend of mine, and he told me when he got his first contract for $20 bucks, he bought a house for $5 million in Atlanta and $5 million in California and spent $5 million on something else and said, okay, now I got $5 million I can run and play with. And then they came to him about halfway through the year, wait a minute, you owe $10 million in taxes. He said, What? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody had ever explained it to him. I mean, we're laughing about it. I mean, but it's so real. And, um, you know, people are, these guys want to get back to their community. They want to buy their mama house. And this financial literacy is, is something that can, and this is the, this is the unique part about why I, ha- I like conversations uh, with the, like you, like, like this with you is because your friends who may be more conservative than I, my friends who may be more liberal than you, I think we can all agree that if we pitched in a couple of dollars to get some financial literacy coaches in a lot of these poor communities, teaching people how to manage money, what to do when they make money, what real estate looks like, how to flip it, how to do this, do that. I think we could help a lot of people. And that's not a partisan idea, but it's a good idea. It's a damn good idea. And that's what I wrote in that op-ed piece. I said, these universities and the leagues owe it to these young athletes who have demonstrated they are disciplined, who have demonstrated they are committed. They owe it to them to get them financial literacy, to get them the right kind of coaching, to get them the right kind of life 
information so they are successful for life, not just a few seasons. I hope it gets attention because I think now that they're doing this, letting them earn money off of their name and stuff in college, what a great time to say, okay, do this, but get into a financial management course and learn what this is all about. It'll make all the difference in the world. And learn how to stay out of trouble. I, I do a little bit of criminal defense work. I represent a few of these individuals. You know, you just, you know, uh, what is what does Tony Dungy say? Nothing good happens after midnight, Dr. Phil. Exactly. You got young men with pure testosterone flowing through their veins, a lot of free time and new money. What could possibly go wrong here? <laughs> and a lot of new friends. Exactly. New friends. Yeah, they come out of the woodwork. Well, listen, I think you and I could sit down and figure out a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> I, I think we could, too. I think we need more. Like I said, we need more good people. So in, in these in these in the establishment, in these halls of Congress, and I'm, I'm only 37 and I, I I may sound pessimistic or jaded, but I'm I can tell you that I, I'm, I'm really hurt after the last couple of weeks. After Buffalo, after yeah. this recent school shooting, I mean, I see the crush of inflation on people. I see, you know, and people, we're still in the middle of a war, right? Yeah. People are committing war crimes, right? You know, I think about the family of Brittany Griner all the time, Dr. Phil. Um, I think about what she's going through. And it's just, I'm hopeful, but I, my tone is probably pessimistic because this is just a kind of weird time that we're in. Well, that's not how you usually are, that's for sure. And it's not what's reflected in your book, Who Are Your People? We've had it up on the table here. I'm sure this is categorized as a children's book. It's one of those things that I think is written at different levels. It is a children's book. Your child can certainly comprehend this. But I have to tell you, the second time I read this, I sat down on the couch with Robin Robin's my wife, as you probably know. We've been married 45 years. And I said, read through this with me. I've read it, but read through it with me. We both agreed. I think some of the best messages that come through are really kind of elegant messages that are very simplistic. You know, the best scientific equations and solutions are the ones that are most simple, have the fewest moving parts. This is a great children's book, Bakari, but it's also a great reminder of family value and family pride. After I read it, I remember my mother saying to me when I was young, we were talking about something, and I said, why not do that? And she said, well, you're a McGraw, and McGraws just don't do that. <laughs> and you understood it. You exactly. understood it, right? Exactly. So we just don't do that. For people that are listening and not watching us on YouTube, the book I'm talking about is Bakari Sellers' new book, Who Are Your People? He really goes through the book, which is cleverly illustrated by Reggie Brown. It starts out with a father and his children, and it says, when you meet someone for the first time, they might ask, who are your people and where are you from? Then it's got a great illustration of people kind of in the clouds, which kind of refer to your ancestry, to me at least. And it says, you should always be proud of who you are. 
Your people were strong and smart. They dreamed of things not yet seen and imagined that we could all be free. Then it talks about that your people were fighters, and it shows that they stood up and fought for what they believed. It kind of goes to the end where it says, so what will you dream and how will you change the world? Your children have to be really proud that their dad wrote this. I'll be honest with you. Uh, It's their second favorite book. Um, They like their numbers book the best, but you know, that is, that's me on the cover and that's Sadie and Stokely throughout the book. For me, it was an awesome opportunity to write a book, allow them to see their image in the book. And you you know, you said it best. I mean, I was trying to write a book so that not only the the child that you're reading it to uh, get something out of it, but the reader as well. Um, and that last quote, like, you know, Dr. Phil, I, I, you, you change the world every single day through your podcast, through your voice, through your op-ed pieces, through your TV. And I, I want people to think about how they're going to change the world. I think we need more, more dreamers. I agree. I'm really proud to meet you. I look forward to meeting you in person because we're on Zoom right now. When I'm out that way or you're out this way, I look forward to sitting down and having dinner with you. You sold some books yesterday because Robin ordered 12 copies of this. (laughs) I love Robin. Yeah. She got it for all the kids that she knows and both of my sons who are fathers themselves. So really good job on this. Congratulations. And I know you're going to sell a bunch of books today. And by the way, he did not even ask me to mention this. So he didn't come on here to sell books. I just wanted to talk about it because I think it's a really good job. I really respect your measured approach to the things that you're saying. You're not just whining and complaining about what things are not. You're taking a constructive approach. A lot of people can complain, but so few offer an alternative. And you certainly put verbs in your sentences and offer alternatives. And I respect that greatly. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the conversation and the questions and the pushback and the pull and the, the listening, because I think these these conversations are healthy and it's the only way we move forward. Well, I couldn't agree more. Let's stay in touch and maybe we'll come up with something that'll create some change in the future, but I look forward to meeting you in person. I look forward to meeting you and I can't, I cannot leave um, without saying you have the most amazing staff with anyone. I know that everybody loves Dr. Phil and I love Dr. Phil, but I had no idea the professionalism and the just amazing people you had around you. I guess I should have known, but I wanted to give them a shout out on air while we were still here. Well, thank you. I'm proud of all of our people. They do this with passion, I can assure you. Everybody believes in what we're doing. So I'm glad to hear you say that. I look forward to talking to you again soon, Bakari. All right. Be blessed. Have a great day. Thank you. Best of luck. Take care. 